Have you wondered about the eternal destiny of the pygmies in Africa who have never heard about Jesus? Does it resist plausibility for you to think that science can be reconciled with the Bible? Or that there could be only one true religion in the world when there are so many authentically pious people out there? These are good and reasonable questions, and anyone who asks them in a spirit of honest inquiry ought to be commended. Sometimes in Christian circles, I find that people can feel embarrassed if they have any doubts. And we, uh, when we feel that embarrassment and we communicate that embarrassment, we, we sometimes unintentionally communicate that such questions ought not to be asked. And when we communicate that, we we thereby unwittingly communicate that such questions may not actually have very good answers. But I think we don't need to be afraid of these questions. If our conception of Jesus cannot withstand honest inquiry, then that Jesus of whom we have conceived is not worthy of our worship. If the faith that we profess is truly in danger of crumbling at the hands of some erudite skeptics, then that faith is not worth the blood that has been spilled over the ages in order to preserve it for us. Sadly, I I cannot answer this morning every question or doubt that you have ever wrestled with. But I would like to propose a way forward regardless of the particular doubts or questions you experience. I propose that if we take almost any doubt, almost any doubt or question regarding the Christian faith, and if we take it back to its source, I think we'll find the roots of most of these questions lie in one or both of the following two essential questions. First, did Jesus really say these things? And second, can Jesus really do what he says? I think most of the questions can be traced back to one of these two. Did Jesus really say these things? And can Jesus really do what he says? For example, a question about whether we can trust the Bible is a question of whether Jesus really said what the Bible says that he said. And a question about whether there can be only one true religion, it's really a question about who has the authority to decide what is ultimately true, which is then really a question about whether Jesus can really exercise all authority in heaven and on earth just as he said he could. Or whether those were merely empty words. See, that trace that question back to its root, and it's a question, can Jesus do what he said? So this morning, we come to the end of chapter 4 of Luke's gospel as we work our way through this book. And in this passage, Luke tackles the second of these two questions of ultimate importance. He's already told us a number of things. We've, We've begun hearing from Luke 
about some of the audacious things that Jesus had to say. And Luke has done his best to cite his sources and to present credible testimony and documentation in an orderly fashion to show us that, yes, in fact, this is what Jesus said. Now he wants to help us consider whether Jesus can actually do any of those audacious things that he said he would do. Let me pray for us and we'll dive in. Father, thank you once again for your word. Thank you for giving us testimony to Jesus and who he is and what he said. Please help us to see this morning whether Jesus can do these crazy things that he claimed to be able to do. Help us now, fill us with your spirit that we might understand and we might see. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. My first point today is that Jesus says what he will do. And to make this point, let me first back up a little bit and remind you of what we read last week. That Jesus went into a synagogue in his hometown of Nazareth and he read from the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 61, the place where it says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And we were told that upon completion of the reading, he handed the scroll back to the attendant and he confidently informed the gathered worshipers that today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus said that he is the one that Isaiah was talking about. Jesus said that he is the chosen one of God. He is the one who has been inaugurated and validated by the spirit of God. Jesus said that he would proclaim good news to the poor. That he would proclaim liberty to the captives. Jesus said that he would enable the blind to recover their sight and the oppressed to regain their liberty. And the people who were there that that day got pretty upset, so much so that they tried to lynch him. But Luke has more to say about these things. The opposition of his hometown crowd wasn't the end of the story. Can we have any confidence that what Jesus said that day, they weren't mere words on his part? Was he just showing off for the people that he grew up with? And so we come to the next scene, our text for today, verse 31. And he, Jesus, went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath, and they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. So we see in this next scene, Jesus moves from his hometown of Nazareth to a nearby town, Capernaum. And he does the same thing in Capernaum that he did in Nazareth, teaching on the Sabbath, verse 31. And there are some similarities and some differences in the people's response between these two scenes. They are astonished here in verse 32, just as the people were in Nazareth, which we saw last week. 
But these people in Capernaum also, they recognize his word as possessing authority. Unlike the people in Nazareth, where the highest authority for them was the crowd's offense and groupthink. Now, in these two verses, Luke doesn't give us the same degree of detail that he gave us in the previous episode in Nazareth. He doesn't tell us that Jesus stood up to read, nor that he was handed a scroll, nor does he tell us which passage he read from the scroll. But I think that Luke doesn't need to tell us all those details again, because he already told us up in verse 16 that what happened in Nazareth happened as was Jesus's custom. So Luke gave us all those details in that first scene. He doesn't need to repeat the details in this second scene. Luke's point is that Jesus had a custom of saying some pretty extreme things. Jesus had a custom of identifying himself as the fulfillment of prophecy from centuries ago. Jesus had a custom of assuring people that he would proclaim God's message, that he would set people free from their oppression and from their infirmity. And Jesus had a custom of assuring people that he has both the favor of God on himself and the authorization to dole out that favor to other people. So when Jesus proclaims this message in Capernaum, they simply, verse 32, they stand in awe of his authority. This man's words have a power unlike anything we have ever seen. He speaks with tremendous confidence and outrageous resoluteness. These words of his would be terribly presumptuous, if not deranged, were they not true. But if they do, in fact, prove to be true, they would be everything we hoped for and more. So as I mentioned earlier, the main question here is, can Jesus do what he says he will do? We've seen what he says. But we must ask, can he do it? Can he really fulfill scripture? Can he really operate in partnership with God's own spirit? Can he really give sight to the blind? Can he really grant liberty to the oppressed? Can he really dish out to starving sinners heaping platefuls of God's favor? The second part of this passage takes up those very questions where Jesus does what he said he will do. Because Luke now documents for us a day in the life of this man, Jesus, from Nazareth. The one who claimed to fulfill Isaiah's prophecies. And Luke gives us now three brief scenes, all from a single day, morning, afternoon, and evening. And each scene focuses on how Jesus' actions are consistent with the authority of his words. Luke is showing us that this was not the empty talk of a charlatan. First, it's Saturday morning. And Jesus has been speaking words of authority in Capernaum's synagogue. Verse 33. 
And in the synagogue there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. Now, the first time we peeked into a Jewish synagogue in the previous passage, we met an angry lynch mob. And now, verse 33, the second time we step into a synagogue in Luke's gospel, the first person we meet there is a demon. This is funny, as Luke almost seems to say that the last thing you'll find in a Jewish synagogue at this time is an obedient worshiper of God. You'll find anything but. The demon here, unlike most attendees, recognizes that there is something unique about this Jesus from Nazareth. He calls him the Holy One of God, which means you are really special from God. But look at verse 35. Yeah, why is this guy special? Jesus simply speaks. He rebukes the demon. And remember that word, he rebukes, because it will keep coming up. Jesus commands silence, and he commands an exit from the possessed man. And then the demon obeys without harming the man at all. And look at the conclusion drawn by the onlookers in verse 36. With authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. You see, they notice that his actions in the synagogue, are consistent with the words that he spoke in verse 32. They said in 32 that he speaks with authority, and now they say he acts with authority, and he acts, interestingly, by speaking with authority. And even supernatural forces obey him. So here now is one example. One man who had been living under spiritual oppression who now has his liberty. He has benefited from the favor of God extended toward him. Here's a poor sufferer who needs suffer no longer. Jesus has done exactly what he said he would do when he quoted Isaiah 61. That's a pretty good morning. But look at what happens during the church picnic in the afternoon. Verse 38. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever. And it left her, and immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now, this is the first time in Luke's gospel that he mentions Simon 
But it's as though Luke assumes that we already know who he is. It's funny, it's not until the next chapter that Simon will become a disciple of Jesus. So these scenes, this one I just read and the one in the next chapter, they're probably out of chronological order. I think Luke wanted to put this Capernaum scene on this day right after that Nazareth synagogue scene on purpose so that we would compare and contrast them as we've been doing. So here we are at Simon's house, and we find a poor woman, Simon's mother-in-law, who's ill with a fever. We need to think about this a little bit. Simon's mother-in-law is at his house, ill with a fever. Since she's at Simon's house, I think it's likely that she's a widow. She doesn't have her own house. She doesn't have a, a, a husband taking care of her. And she might not have any sons to care for her because she's staying with her daughter, Simon's wife. So she is a classic case of a destitute down and outer in Israelite society. Without a husband, she has no protector, no provider. Without sons, she has no Medicare. And so Simon here is doing exactly what God commanded his people to do, to take care of widows and the most vulnerable in society. And a part of that care for her now is expressed by recognizing the one who speaks words of authority and power and appealing to him, verse 38, on behalf of this poor, sick woman. So what does Jesus do? Verse 39, he simply stands over her and he rebukes the fever. And it leaves her and immediately she rises and begins to serve them. Look at what Jesus' words do. They free this poor woman from the oppression of her illness. And the, the illness obeys Jesus, just like the demon obeyed him by leaving. And Jesus' words transform this woman from a needy individual to an eager servant of others. She immediately rises and begins to serve them. Here is the promised liberty and favor of God from Isaiah in action once again. Jesus does exactly what he said he would do, and he does it with a simple rebuke to a high fever. That's a pretty good afternoon. But look at what happens as the sunlight fades and evening sets in. Verse 40. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him. And he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. So in the morning, Jesus cast out a demon. And in the afternoon, he healed an illness. And now in in the evening, he repeats both of those feats over and over and over and over again. He heals people and he casts out many demons. And Luke pulls out all the extreme language here. All those who had any who were sick with various diseases, he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. 
And Jesus won't allow the demons to play any part in his work, even when it seems as though they might partner with him by declaring his identity as the Christ, the Messiah, the chosen one. You see, Jesus, he identifies, he decides who identifies him, and he decides how and when they may do so. And so he simply once again rebukes all of these demons in verse 41, and they obey. And so morning, noon, and night, this day in the life of Jesus, we see him doing exactly what he said he would do. Preaching the message of God's kingdom, proclaiming liberty to captives, recovering the health of the oppressed, bringing good news to the poor, and proclaiming the year of God's favor toward those who suffer and are weighed down under many burdens. Jesus does all of these things simply with the words of his mouth. Now, he does use his hands a little bit, laying his hands on the sick. But in all three scenes, Luke portrays Jesus as bringing liberty to the oppressed by rebuking the oppressor, be it a demon or a sickness. The point is simply that Luke tells us in verse 32 that Jesus' word possessed authority. And then Luke shows us that very authority in verses 35, 39, and 41 as Jesus keeps rebuking the oppressors. Luke backs up the claims of Jesus with credible reports of the evidence. So... Can Jesus actually do what he said he would do? Absolutely. The evidence shows us that he does exactly what he said he would do. So what are the implications of this? What does Luke want us to take away from this? So Jesus can do what he said he would do. So what? What difference will this make in the world or in our lives? Look now at how he concludes the passage. We just can't keep this to ourselves. Verse 42. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. So here is the man who speaks words of power. Here is the man who has the authority to rebuke both demons and illness and to be obeyed. And in verse 42, the people think they can prevent him from leaving. Here, interestingly, is another contrast between the people of Capernaum and the people of Nazareth. Remember, in Nazareth, they didn't even want him. And here, these people think they can keep him to themselves. But you don't do that to the guy who has the authority, the ability to do whatever he says he wants to do. Whether you try to kill him or keep him. He still does whatever it is that he must do. 
If he is really the one Isaiah spoke about, then he is going to be made a spectacle of before all nations. He will gather God's people from the ends of the earth and bring them home, return them to God, unite them in faith and in salvation. And he can't do that if he's simply a one-hit wonder. If he does his work in only one place, developing a small but committed following. And so he must go and preach the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. He was sent for this purpose. And so with his power and his authoritative word, he declares that this is his purpose. To preach the good news of the kingdom of God and to do so in all those other towns. And if Jesus could bring liberty to the oppressed, just as he said he would, and if he can bring recovery of health to those who are suffering, just as he said he would, then he can also preach the good news to all the other towns, just as he said he would. Jesus' plans for the world, friend, friends, are not the same thing as our plans for Jesus. We often want Jesus to give us what we want to do for us, what we ask, and to make our lives happier and healthier. But his mission... The reason for which he was sent was to preach good news. And he made people healthier and happier to validate his words. But if we get too distracted by the validation of his preaching, those miracles, then we will lose track of the preaching itself regarding who Jesus is and how he brings salvation. When we turn Jesus into Santa Claus or into a cosmic Amazon.com distributor that just makes what you want show up at your door, he won't waste any time moving on to another place where his words will carry a graver authority. So we see that Luke's main point in this passage is that Jesus can do what he says he will do. How does all this apply? I have four applications for you this morning. Number one, please don't be afraid to doubt. Please don't be afraid to doubt. Whether you claim to be a Christian or not, doubts are normal and they are simply a part of living life in a confused and confusing world. And Luke wants to help you with your doubt. He doesn't call you a terrible person for doubting. There is no need to be embarrassed. Your doubts do not make you a terrible or an insecure or an unfaithful person. In fact, being honest about your doubts might make you more faithful. There is no need to freak out. The presence of doubts does not threaten Jesus' identity and it does not disqualify him from doing what he said he would do. And let me speak a word to the parents here. Parents, please understand that as your children grow into young men and women, please don't freak out when they express doubts about the faith. Give them space to process, 
to consider and to work these things out in an intellectually satisfying way. Because I can assure you, from having done campus ministry for a few decades, if you do not give them the space to process these things in an intellectually satisfying way, someone else will. And, and evil people will come in and they will take advantage of your insecurity by blowing it all out of proportion. So let them doubt. Let them ask their questions. Don't be threatened by it. Give them space and help them to find satisfying answers because there are satisfying answers to be had. We don't need to be afraid. Number two, please doubt honestly. Please doubt honestly. Please don't make up issues that are really not issues for you. Typically, when someone asks me about the eternal fate of the pygmies in Africa, how can Christianity be true when you've got those people out there? I usually respond to such people by saying, I could try to answer that question for you. I could, and I'd be happy to do so. But if I do, will you put your faith in Jesus? And when they say, well, no, then I, I then know that the question is not really their main question. And I would rather talk about the main question. What is really keeping you from believing? Is it that there's something that you don't want to give up, that you'd have to give up if you became a Christian? Is it that someone who claimed to be a Christian once wounded you deeply and now you don't know if you can trust anyone associated with the movement? Is it that there's some other intellectual hurdle that you can't seem to get over? Is it that you could simply use more evidence to show you that Jesus did, in fact, say these things and that he can, in fact, do what he says? Whatever it is, when you doubt, please don't just go looking for reasons to indulge some sinful desire or other. I really want this one thing in my life, so I'm going to make it sound like this is the issue. I'm going to do this intellectual quest. Please doubt honestly. Honest questions deserve honest answers. But dishonest questions might not deserve as much. Please doubt honestly. Application number three. Consider whether any other God can do what he says and grant liberty. Please consider whether any other God can grant liberty. Money entices us with a promise of true security. Can money grant you that? Can money do what it says it will do? Sexual pleasure promises escape and satisfaction. Ask yourself frankly, does it really work? Does it really work? Does it really give you the freedom and the satisfaction that it promised? Can any other god grant liberty? The gods of Buddhism, for example, and other Eastern religions promise a sense of belonging and honor. Can lifeless statues really grant such things? Ask yourself this question. Can any other god do what it says it will do? Because Jesus can. Application number four. You don't have to understand Jesus in order to trust him. You don't have to understand Jesus in order to trust him. It's okay to be honest about your doubts. 
But please understand that Jesus is the one with all authority. You are not. Because Jesus has all authority, he will do some things that you would prefer he not do. And because he has all authority, he will do some things that you just won't understand. But you can still rest content in the two ultimate questions of essential importance. Did he really say these things? Yes. And can he really do what he says he will do? Yes. He is the chosen one of God. He brings salvation. He makes it possible for us to know and to live in the shade of God's favor. He gives life to the dead. He gives sight to the blind. And he gives liberty to the captives. I'll be honest. I have my own doubts from time to time. But even though that is true, there really is no one else that I can trust with my life. And you can too. Please do so today. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we bow before you. You are the God of gods, the Lord of lords, and you have sent Jesus to be King of kings and Lord of lords. And so, Jesus, we bow before you as the one who is able to do all that you said you could do. Help us to rest confident in that truth, even if we don't understand everything about you and we don't understand everything that you are up to. Help us to be honest about our doubts, to ask honest questions, to seek out the evidence and the answers, and to seek you and your face. Because, Jesus, you are the only God who can deliver what you have promised. You are the only God who, has, who can do what you have said that you will do. Help us to trust you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.